Peter here is urging us as believers to make every effort, to put in diligent effort to grow in the Christian life. And in verse 3 through 11, he's going to lay down three things that are going to be helpful for us to put in the effort that we're being called to in the gospel, this effort to put uh, to grow in the Christian life and godliness and in Christ's likeness. He's going to lay down the provision that God gives us for the diligent Christian life. He's going to lay down a paradigm for the practice of the diligent Christian life. And he's going to lay down the promises that God lays before us, the reward and the, the, the blessings that God promises us when we put in the effort for the diligent Christian life. So in verse 3 and 4, he speaks about the provision for the diligent Christian life. And look, I'm going to read verse 3 through 4 here. If you, if you have it in front of you in your scriptures, you can follow along. His divine power, that's primarily a reference to the Father. There's a Trinitarian shape here in verse 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we could just say a godly life. Through the knowledge of Him, that's Christ, who called us to His own glory and excellence, or His excellent glory, or His virtuous glory, by which He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That idea of divine nature is there. It's not that we become God or we become divine, but we become regenerate. We participate in the life of God. We participate in the love of God. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so this passage speaks to us about what God provides for us, what we need as we pursue the diligent Christian life. And the Father has provided all things for a godly life. And there's a lot of things that I could say here, and I'm going to skip past it, because basically the idea is that the way that God gives us access to these things, all of these things that the Father has provided for us, is through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And especially through the knowledge of what Peter calls here his excellent glory, or his virtuous glory. And you might ask the question, what in the world does Peter mean when he says that God gives me access to everything that I need for a godly life through Christ's excellent glory? What is Christ's excellent glory? Well, it's simply this, just to keep things, there's a lot we can say in all of these, in all of these passages. The basic idea here that Peter has in mind is Christ's perfect humanity. All that God has provided for us comes to us through the knowledge of Christ's perfect and perfected Humanity, His excellent glory. And you say, well, what's Christ's perfect humanity? Well, first of all, we have to keep in mind that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. We have to understand that both of those are important and key and essential to the Christian life. Jesus is no mere man. He's God in the flesh, but He is true man and He is fully man. And when we think of Christ's excellent glory, when we think of His perfect and perfected humanity... We, we think of his death and his resurrection. But the way that we might want to put this to help us follow along with what Peter is saying in this particular section of Scripture is we're thinking about this idea, uh, this tension, this contrast in Christ's life uh, that is exhibited to us in his death and resurrection. We might put it in these terms, the triumph or the victory of a life poured out or the triumph or the victory of Christ's self-sacrificing love, his perfect and perfected humanity. It's through the knowledge of Christ's perfect humanity. It's through the knowledge of the victory of his life poured out, of the triumph of his self-sacrificing love, that we find what we need to live a godly life. 
And this is what Peter has in mind here when he speaks about excellent glory. He's thinking about Christ's perfect and perfected humanity. He's thinking about this idea that we call Christian love. This blessing of self-sacrificial love. This glorious pouring out. And so this is why he moves on in verse 4 to begin to speak of the great and precious promises that have been granted to us through this perfect sacrifice of Christ. So he has in mind here Christ's perfect sacrifice. He has in mind the atonement that Christ wins for us in his death and his resurrection. And he has in mind the example that Christ's atonement becomes for us in his death and in his resurrection. So we have this glorious Trinitarian statement here of how God has provided what we need, all that we need for a godly life in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the life of Christ poured out for us in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, and all that it has accomplished for us. So Christ, through his self-sacrificing life, his self-sacrificing love, has purchased for us all these great and precious promises. And that's primarily a reference to the greatest and most precious promise in the New Covenant, which is the Holy Spirit, so that through these promises, that's especially through the Holy Spirit, we might become partakers of the divine nature. We can come to share in Christ's perfect and perfected humanity, so that we come and share in, by experience and by practice, a life poured out. The triumph and the victory and the blessing of a life characterized by self-sacrificing love. All right, so I just covered a whole lot of material there very, very quickly, but this is what God provides for us. He provides us the humanity of Jesus Christ and all that he accomplishes in his work, his death and in his resurrection. Now, this humbles us because you'll notice there very carefully at the end of verse 3 that Jesus Christ calls us to this perfect humanity. He calls us into a life that is like his, a Christ-like life. A life poured out, a life of love, a life of self-sacrificing love, with the hope and the promise of the triumph and the glory and the blessing that is in it and that follows it. And so we come to this passage and we're humbled because it's a very tall order that Christ has placed upon us, isn't it? I mean, it's wonderful on one hand. We're so thankful for all that Christ has done for us and all that the Father has done for us and all that the Spirit is for us. And yet we're humbled because we realize that we have before us now an obligation to follow Christ and to become like Him. And for ourselves to become living sacrifices in response to Him. So this is what God has provided for us. So then in verse 5 through 7, Peter's going to move on to speak then about the practice of this diligent Christian life. How do we live Christ-likeness? How do we think about this? In fact, He's going to give us a paradigm for practice. And He helps us with this. And the concept that He's going to push here in verse 5 through 7 is, uh, and I should say verse, verse 5 through 8, is this idea of virtue, which David is going to be preaching on this morning. And I hope that I don't step on his toes. I can't promise that I won't, brother. So. <laughs> but here, verse 5 through 7, we're going to move through this very quickly. I do want to highlight just a couple of things here. But look what he says here in verse 5. It is verse 5 through 7. He says, for this very reason, because Christ has called you to his own humanity to follow him, to follow his example. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with excellence, with this humanity of Jesus Christ. This idea of virtue, you'll probably hear it preached to you this morning, is this Greek concept of the perfect man, the paragon human, 
the idealized humanity. And here Peter is saying there is an idealized man. There is a perfect man. His name is Jesus Christ. So as you practice your faith, practice Christ. And he puts it in terms of these virtues. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These are the virtues of Jesus Christ. These are six ways of thinking about Christ's perfection, of Christ's likeness. The goal of the Christian life is to become like Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. In order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Your destiny, brothers, your calling in Christ is to participate in his Christ-likeness, in his perfect and perfected humanity, into the triumph of a life poured out. And the way that we see this worked out, then, is through these virtues that are listed here. Christ had knowledge. He knew the will of God. He knew the Word of God. We see this worked out in self-control. We see this in Jesus Christ, who teaches us, as his disciples, to deny ourselves, as he denied himself and took up his cross for us, self-control. Christ had steadfastness. That word steadfastness is rooted in the idea of courage. The idea of courage is rooted in the idea of a willingness to face obstacles and opposition and pain and hardship and suffering for the object that is greater. Now in the Christian life, what is the greater object that Christ suffered for? He was willing to come and die. For who? For the church. For who? For you. He's steadfast. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to die for you. He's the perfect man. Christ was godly. He was religious. He loved the Lord his God. John 15, verse 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christ was godly. He loved the Father. He lived for the Father. He abided in His Father's Word. It was His life and it was His joy. This is what it means to be Christ-like. We're called to the same thing. Christ had brotherly affection. Just look at His earthly ministry. So often He was there healing and ministering to the crowds, even people who He knew would reject Him, who He did not commit Himself to, yet He taught them and He healed them. He cast out their demons. And He spent all night in prayer for them. And when they came and they followed him, when he, when he needed a break, and he was going up on the mountain, and the disciples said, should we turn them all away, because we know that you need a break, and he looked at them and he said to himself, I can't just simply turn them away, he had compassion on them, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, and he poured himself out for them, brotherly affection. We see Christ's brotherly affection in his opposition to the Pharisees. His willingness to confront them. His willingness to rebuke them. His willingness over and over and over again to try to get into their head what their sins were. So call them to repentance. His love for his countrymen. His love for his leaders. His brotherly affection. A life poured out. The glory of it. The virtue of it. The excellence of it. And of course Christ was, had love. <clears throat> And he exemplifies to us love. And what Peter has in mind here when he speaks of love is very much like that love that Jesus speaks about in John 15, 12 through 14. When he speaks about true friendship, living your life for the sake of another. 
that you live for reciprocating. That's the idea of friendship. It's not simply Christ's life poured out for us. It's the return of the life that we live poured out for them and for one another. This is how Jesus puts it. In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me there. I want you to see it. It's such a great passage. John 15, 12 through 14. This is really what Peter means when he says love here at the end of that list. John 15, 12 through 14. This is my commandment. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He's saying, this is my commandment to you. This is what I want you to know. This is what I want you to go do. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you love like I love. That you love one another like I have loved you. Well, how has Christ loved me is the question. Verse 13, he answers it. Greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That he gives his whole self to them. He pours himself out. He sacrifices himself. Look at verse 14. You are my friends. He calls them friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. <laughs> when you enter into this love, we are friends. You can receive my sacrifice, but it's until you put it into practice that you don't that you know me. You don't know me until you start practicing it, until you start working it out, until you know this experientially in your own life. It's one thing to say, I believe that Jesus covered my sins. It's another thing to say, therefore, I'll pour myself out for his people. That's when we become Christ's friends. That's when we come to know his sacrifice. To share in it, to taste something of it. Christ dies for you. If you become a living sacrifice for Him, that's friendship. That's the love that Peter has in mind here. That's the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And so we strive for this. And we strive for this. And we know, brothers and sisters, and Christ assures us even in His Word that we won't ever fully conform to this in this life, although we strive for it. That's why we have to be stirred up to strive for it. We fall short of it. We have to be reminded. We have to be stirred up. We have to be encouraged. We have to be told by the Apostle, make every effort to add these virtues to your Christianity. And so just to encourage you for a minute, let me read to you 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Because this is a responsibility, but it's also a promise. It's a hope that we have in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 through 3. Beloved, we are God's children now already. But what we will be has not yet appeared. And so we strive for this, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And I'm just going to pause here for just a moment, brothers, and I'm just going to meditate upon that for a minute, and just bear with me. But brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us, it gives us a picture of Christ at the right hand of the Father. And we have a revelation of that in the book of Revelation. And you know the revelation there in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. That whole picture that's painted for us of the throne of God and the rainbow halo and all the elders and the people of God and the angels of God around the throne and the seven spirits of God and that glorious picture. And then in chapter 5 we get a picture of the Lamb. We get a picture of Christ at the Father's right hand. And what's the picture that we see? 
It's a, it's a slain lamb. It's a picture of a, of a lamb poured out. It's, it's throat slit. And brothers, what is going to be a day coming? We look at Jesus face to face. And we see the nail marks in His hands. And we see the scars on His face. And we're going to see Him. We're going to look into that visage. And by His grace, we're going to see a reflection of Him and a reflection of Him in us. And we are going to be made like Him to live an eternal life forever in a, in a place of glory that we're promised in giving ourselves for one another world without end. And everyone who has this hope in Him purifies himself even as He is pure. And that's our great hope and that's what moves us. And so then Peter tells us, he's, talks about the, he's, talk, he's spoken to us about the provision of the diligent Christian life, all that God has given us in the perfect humanity of Christ, and the triumph of a life poured out. He's talked to us about the virtues that we put on in order to imitate Christ's life poured out. And he speaks to us about the promise of the diligent Christian life. And I know I'm running out of time here, so I'm going to go very, very quickly through this. But the reward is essentially a heaven with Christ, which I just mentioned to you. So I'll be very, very brief here. Look at the text. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing the apostle promises, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's two promises, effectiveness and fruitfulness in the Christian life. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. There's the promise of stability in the Christian life. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. The idea that Peter's communicating there is that God has called you to this life. So live it. You've been elected for it. You've been called for it. And in that assurance, pursue it. For in this way, verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ has already purchased that for us by His perfect humanity. And on the day of judgment, we will have great joy when we come to Him and we can lay down all the crowns of the sacrifices that we have shared in with Him by the power of His Holy Spirit as we sought to live diligently a life poured out for Him and for His people. That's what Peter's getting at here. So it's, a, it's an amazing passage, and I hope it's helpful for you as you see again in the Scriptures who Christ is and what He has done for us and who we are in Him and who we're destined to become.